From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week, we're sharing a highlight from the 56th New York Film Festival. During the festival, we presented free daily conversations with the artists behind the festival's selections. Filmmaker Morgan Neville has had two of the most successful nonfiction films of recent years, with his 2013 Oscar-winning documentary, 20 Feet from Stardom, and this year's Sundance debut, Won't You Be My Neighbor? The director was at NYFF with his latest documentary, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, about the making of Orson Welles' long-lost The Other Side of the Wind. The film is now playing on Netflix. Neville joined the Film Society's deputy director, Eugene Hernandez, to discuss this new work and offer insight into what drives him as a filmmaker. Let's go to that now. Morgan, congratulations on um, what is, I'm, I'm sure you couldn't have imagined uh, what a year, what this year would bring for you a year ago at this time. Um, no. To have uh, Mr. Rogers, the Mr. Rogers documentary earlier this year and now to have uh, your film here at the, at the festival. Yep. Congratulations. Thank you. I don't think anybody would have guessed that documentaries would be having their year that are having. I mean, it's, it's what I've experienced, but you know, everybody's been talking about this being the year of the documentary. I think a year ago, nobody would have predicted this. And so it's all caught us by surprise, but, um, but it's amazing. I mean, it, just the fact that people are turning to documentary and the numbers they're turning to them in and just the kind of support. I mean, it, it's funny because I've been, this summer marks the 20th, 25th anniversary of when I made my first documentary. So 25 years ago, there was nothing cool about documentaries. You know, it was the spinach of filmmaking. And it was really, um, maybe you could get a grant, or you could go to PBS, HBO was doing a little bit, but it was hard, you know. And to see what's happened you know, these waves, and it's not a consistent wave, it's been like ebbs and flows as it kind of has been growing and growing and growing. And now, just to see the appetite people have for not just documentaries, but any kind of nonfiction storytelling. Well, so take us back, with that in mind, take us back 20, 20, take us back 26 years. Yeah. What were you doing 26 years ago, and what was it that led you to this path that you would begin 25 years ago? I was a journalist, um, and that's, you know, my, my big loves as a kid were always music, film, and writing, and journalism, you know. Um, somehow, in my mind, journalism felt like an adult thing to do, and music and film felt like too much fun for me to actually be able to think of them as an adult profession. So I went into journalism, which I loved, um, and still love, and I will say, I still think of myself in many ways as a journalist, but just the, you know, the kind of, um, the transition was more me thinking, oh, here's a story I think I could maybe make a documentary about, not knowing what that meant at the time. And so 
we ended up, I had an idea for a documentary that ended up becoming my first film, which was called Shotgun Freeway, Drives Through Lost L.A., which was a crazy, ambitious Mondo documentary about the meaning of history in Los Angeles. And as a native Angelino... And Where did you grow up in L.A.? What part of... Uh, Pasadena, and where I still live. So I actually live on the block that my kindergarten was on. So... Yeah, even though I've, you know, lived in many cities and moved around, but somehow I went full circle back to kindergarten. Um, But um, this idea was just me feeling like, oh, this is a story I could tell. This is something I'm really interested in. Let me jump in. I'll be done in three months. You know, kind of like make it a summer project. Where did the idea for that film come from? It came from me having a conversation with an old family friend who had grown up in Hollywood in the 1940s. And he would tell me stories about living in Hollywood that were the kind of things you couldn't read in books. You know, this is before the internet. So there's no way to kind of look it up. And he'd say, oh, that bar on Holly Boulevard, Sirhan Sirhan was the bartender at that place. And then, you know, this was where, you know, the... um, this was the first lesbian bar in Los Angeles, and this happened here, and all these kinds of things that I, the only way to get that stuff was to talk to people, and I started just shooting interviews with people about their own versions of what history meant in a city like Los Angeles. I ended up interviewing Joan Didion, James Elroy, John Melius, Buck Henry, you know, along with Burt Corona, a Latino activist, and Buddy Collette, a great jazz musician, and kind of looking at what LA history means to these different people and how the history just looks different. It also was kind of a chip I had on my shoulder as a kid from Southern California, going back east for college and then working as a journalist in New York, um, feeling like when I mentioned the idea of culture or history and LA, people laughed at me. Yes. You know, LA history is an oxymoron, you know. I'm from Southern California as well, I know what you mean. You know, you know the feeling. And I said, well, I'll, I'll show you. So I. Um, I've actually ended up making three films about L.A. history, and it's just one of my kind of personal obsessions. But that first film was my film school. You know, I, it didn't take three months, it took three years. (laughs) And I made every mistake, um, but I learned so much. And the film turned out well. You know, we premiered it South By, we sold it to the Sundance Channel, and we had a theatrical release in 12 cities, and is we it made out money. In the world now is the film out available now in any way? I think it is streaming online, um, and you know there are DVDs out there. It's yeah. it's you know you can find it. What were the biggest? You said you made mistakes. You made what, what were the biggest things you learned from that first film? What when you look back now, what were the the kind of pivotal um, lessons of that experience? Well, it was just trying to figure out how do you tell stories in this new medium for Uh me. Uh And um, I mean, we're also making a film about history. We had no money. Um, So figuring out, and actually a lot of this ended up helping us in the end. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we couldn't afford to just go to archives Mm -hmm. and ask for their footage. We had to find footage. So I ended up calling every um, public utility company in LA. I called the LAPD, the energy department. And I said, do you have an archive? And several of them said, yeah, there's a closet in the basement full of film. And I ended up finding so much stuff that had never been seen before. Mm -hmm. um, That was just, you know, somebody who loved 
history in Los Angeles. It was this incredible experience to come up with all that footage. And then we cut the film on Avid, and I think it was maybe, I don't know if I can make this claim, maybe the first documentary ever cut on Avid. Because at that time, it was the first Avids had just come out, uh -huh. and they were so expensive that you could only cut commercials on them. It's something that was like super short form. And a friend of mine worked in a post house, and he said, if you edit from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., uh, you can use this machine. So I spent a year staying up all night editing and then doing my day job, yeah. which was producing at PBS. And uh, the film turned out all right, you know, but, but it was a lot of trial and error, just figuring out how, you know, also it was an insanely complicated film. Like it was what so you, ambitious. What were you know. producing at PBS? Huel Hauser. Now, does anybody here know who Huel Hauser is? Raise your hand if you know Huel Hauser. Okay, we have about six people, all native Californians. Californians, <laughs> yeah. Californians. So, um, Huel Hauser was. Can you describe Huel Hauser? Huel Hauser Can was. Can you do an impression, by the way? I wonder. Of course. Okay. Hi, I'm Huel Hauser. Here we are with California's gold. Huel Hauser was a fixture on public television in LA and throughout California for 30 years. His show was on every day, and with a department of three people, we did 45 half-hour episodes a year. He would travel around the state, around California, yep. finding the most interesting, unexpected um, people, places, uh, landmarks that were often in, in your own backyard or a place that's like right next to a place you had been, but you just yep. never quite noticed. And he was that guy who would just kind of like stop and talk to you in a very... Exactly. And it was very, you know, just kind of this ambling show. And But it, he would find interesting places, and it was a very kind of leisurely paced show. But you had the sense of discovering new places and visiting like you'd been to that place by the end of an episode. And... Quite a conversationalist. Yeah, he would talk, you know, and it's, you know, maybe not the greatest interviewer in a way. He would just get people to talk, but, you know, it's a lot of his, you know... One of his catchphrases was, golly. <laughs> so kind of like, a lot of that. He was a Tennessean. He was from Tennessee who had found himself in Southern California and made a career kind of telling the history of L.A. and California. So I was doing that show by day, which was this kind of sunny, utopian version of history, and doing my dystopian version of L.A. history at night, which is about, you know, destruction and disasters and, you know, racial strife and everything else. Um, and that was great. So by the end of those three years, I, I was ready to go. Did you, did you imagine it, as a first film, did you imagine it as a career that you would pursue? Or did you see it as something you would, you would make films on the side? Did you imagine you'd make films on the side while having a day job? Or how did you envision at that kind of well, first moment? I mean, two weeks after I started my first documentary, I called my parents and I said, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Like I what, knew, what, hands down. What They're did they like, say? great. My parents were really, I mean, they were, you know, eccentric bohemians, I guess, in a way. My dad was an antiquarian book dealer and publisher. And, um, you know, we would go visit famous authors' graves on family vacations, things like that. That's what we did, you know. I've seen many famous authors' graves, so. 
How did you know this is what you want? How did you know? Well, it just what? suddenly, I was everything I liked. You know, it's film, it's journalism, it's travel, curiosity, interviewing, like everything I liked was there. I was like, this is it. It's kind of, I just knew it instantly. And it's all I've done since for 25 years. I mean, I haven't had another job. Um, so I just jumped in full bore. And so it was, I never hesitated that it was going to be a career, even but, though sometimes it's a Korean, not well, a career. <laughs> so that's what I'm curious about, the Korean side of it. Um, and we can talk about this now because it's clearly a career. But yeah. was there ever a moment or when was the moment? Was there a moment and maybe describe the moment if there was one when you thought maybe this wouldn't be a career? Maybe you should rethink the path. Was there ever kind of a, a wall you hit? And then if so, how did you get around it or over it? I mean, there were walls, but I don't think I ever actually doubted that this was what I was going to do, even when there were hard times, yeah. you know. And, you know, the business of documentary has changed so much. So even when my first film came out, even though we did, we did well enough, there was no clear career path yeah. to how to make a career as a documentarian. I mean, that itself is kind of a joke. <laughs> um, and theatrical documentaries were virtually non-existent. Mm -hmm. And there have been so many ebbs and flows throughout these years. People don't even remember all these. But, you know, a lot of the documentaries were funded by originally VHS and then DVD sales and, you know, get advances on that and then maybe a cable sale and then, um, and then you know, early 2000s films like, you know, Spellbound and Capturing the Freedmans made people think that they could make money off of documentaries, so they put money in, so there was some equity money, and then nobody made money, so that went away, and then um, then DVDs went away, and then um, streaming came in, and it took forever for people to realize how to make money off of streaming of documentaries. So it's just, it's been very up and down. You know, I've seen so many different kind of eras of documentary. Um, so to see where it's at now yeah. is kind of surreal to me. I also don't think it's gonna last quite like this forever. I, I'm realistic enough to know that we're in another bubble, you know, and that'll go and then there'll be something else beyond that. So, you know, it's not a straight line. What does the, what does this moment, you've been out at festivals and out in the mm -hmm. world with um, Won't You Be My Neighbor mm -hmm. and now with this movie, I'm sure you're engaging with a lot of audiences. Um, what can you tell us about why this moment is so um, bountiful and successful for well, documentaries with audiences? It's interesting. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of discussion about um, how streaming services have changed, you know, and I think a year ago everybody was saying um, streaming services killed the theatrical documentary, you know. Mm -hmm. um, then look at this year. Mm -hmm. And I think in a way it's built an audience for documentary. I mean, what I heard forever making documentaries from people was I love documentaries, I don't know where to find them. And now when you put documentaries on an even mm -hmm. field with comedy and drama and everything mm -hmm. else, many, many people will pick documentaries. I heard that on average every I get this right. Every Netflix subscriber would watch one documentary a month on the service. And when you think about how many tens of millions, 100 million subscribers, whatever it is, it's mm -hmm. a lot of documentaries are being watched there. Mm -hmm. So I feel like in a way, people realize that 
that's a type of storytelling they like. And then I feel like for the theatrical experience, documentaries are doing a lot of what Hollywood doesn't do anymore, mm. which is create, hopefully, complex, entertaining, moving stories um, that don't have superheroes in them, you know, yeah. unless Fred Rogers is a superhero or Ruth Bader Ginsburg, or which they are in yeah. a way, yeah. um, but they're sincere ones. Yeah. Um, so I feel like, you know, there's that, which is making films that people want to see, and there's a bigger audience. Documentary filmmaking, I think, has just gotten better and more interesting, too. Um, and, of course, we're in this political moment where yeah. documentaries are speaking to something we're trying to all process. Yeah. And they're doing that in a more pointed way than a lot of scripted yeah. fare. Um, and I think it's been really interesting also to see how documentaries have been feeding each other. You know, I feel like um, people have a good experience seeing a documentary in the theater and they say, well, I want to do that again or I want to see more. So there have been yeah. so, many, so many more documentaries getting a lot of love. I mean, it's really exceptional to look at what's happened compared to where we were at even a year ago. Who are the, who are the documentary filmmakers that are meaningful to you or have influenced you and or the seminal films, the, the docs or, uh, yeah. or narrative films that are kind of your go-to, your, your, yeah. the ones that are most important to you? It's funny because I remember um, when I was working as a journalist, I worked in San Francisco for several years and I remember um, Roger and me opened in LA and New York, two screens, yeah. you know, and I was in San Francisco and I drove to LA for the day from San Francisco to see it and drove home. That's a six and a half hour drive. Um, because I just, you know, I was so interested in the medium and it was, I was intrigued by it. And, you know, that was a film that, um, that was important, um, you know, Thin Blue Line. But a film that really affected me was um, When We Were Kings. Wow. The, um, you know, the- Leon Gast. The Leon Gast film about, um, Ali, yeah. and, um, and the way it balanced um, the fight with the music and the culture and all those things coming together, mm. uh, and just the editing of that film mm -hmm. um, was fantastic. Um, so that's a film I've gone back and revisited mm -hmm. uh, many times. So, I mean, there were those films. I mean, I was also, I mean, another film I should point out was F for Fake. Um, so the Orson Welles film he made, um, he made it in the middle of making The Other Side of the Wind in 1973, and it's this incredible kind of um, essay film that's, you know, mischievous and smart and crazy, and you finish watching it and you immediately want to watch it again, you know, and that was a film that really excited me too, and a film that very directly influenced my making of my new film. Um, they'll love me when I'm dead. So, you know, there are lots of things like that that just stuck with me from when I was, when I was young. How many people here were able to see uh, the new film, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, here at the festival or have seen it yet so far? Raise your hands if you, okay. So okay. some of you haven't, many of you haven't yet. Um, so this, this is uh, our opportunity maybe to talk a little bit about it for those sure. who haven't. Um, some of you may have heard a little bit about it, but um, maybe, um, 
as a way of describing and talking about the movie, maybe talk a little bit about how the project found you um, specifically. Well, um, so it's a film about Orson Welles' last movie, um, which was is called The Other Side of the Wind. He started shooting in 1970. He came back to America after two decades living abroad at the dawn of the new Hollywood and sets about making this film that's a film about a filmmaker at the end of his life that can't finish a film. So Orson makes this film that's very autobiographical, told as a movie within a movie. And it's crazy. You know, the movie is just um, so complex and has so many different shades. And this is what I knew just from reading about the film, because it hadn't been completed. It was a famously kind of lost and yeah, forgotten. Yeah, it was or... basically completely shot, partly edited, and then stuck in a vault because of legal problems. So um, there was a book that came out about four years ago um, by Josh Karp called the La Orswell's Last Movie. And I first read an excerpt of the book, then I read the book, and I just thought if I could ever get my hands on this footage, I would love to tell a story about Orson at the end of his life using this movie he was making about himself. You know, and it's a perfect kind of meta text to use. And Orson was somebody who invites that kind of meta reading in such a big way. Um, and so I looked into it. Josh ended up producing my film with me. Um, and then Frank Marshall had been trying to get the rights to the footage for decades. They thought at that time they were about to get the rights. And we kind of joined forces and said, if you can ever get the footage, we'll make the feature, we'll finish the feature, we'll do a doc. So you were each kind of on parallel tracks, but yeah. not quite until they crossed. You didn't yeah, know. and we didn't actually even expect to make the films at the same time. It was like, you know, we can each make films, but we're not, they're not going to be in tandem. Yeah. You know, you do yours and we'll do ours. And then when Netflix came in, they, they looked at both and said, well, we'll take it all, you know, which was great. And they were able to basically write a check big enough to pay off everybody who was suing each other over this footage and make everybody happy. Um, and it's a crazy story that's in the dock about yeah, that you can't it, imagine where this film ended up. No, it gets, I mean, it, it's it, unbelievable. it gets, it gets way out there. Um, and even just, you know, you could do a whole doc just about the lawsuits that went on around this film, um, which I don't get much into. Um, but, um, I, so I thought that was going to happen three years ago. I got a call about a year and a half ago saying, we got the footage, finally. Like, we've closed the deal. Everybody's happy. It's in the vault in Paris. Let's get this done right now. And so I started working on the film before I had even seen the footage. Um, so I had started doing interviews just to figure out what the story was going to be. And we were waiting and waiting for the footage. And then it had to be shipped you know, from Paris to L.A. And then it had to be cleaned and Mo Henry, a legendary negative cutter who's you know done every movie, came out of retirement to fix the negative so it could be transferred and then they transferred it to Technicolor and we were getting it in dribs and drabs. So we were making the film already editing and every day we get a little batch of footage and we're like, what the hell is this? Because it, there was no explanation as to what the footage is and the film itself is a really complex film within a film with all this raw material. And so it was a giant, puzzle for us. Fortunately, we didn't have to make it make narrative sense as they did on the feature. We were just looking at it as raw material to pull to talk about Orson. So we made our films completely in tandem. We got the footage at the same time and we edited them completely separately. So we didn't look at what they did and they didn't look at what we did. 
until very near the end of completion. And then we kind of said, okay, we can, we can look at each other's films because we wanted them to kind of grow organically in their own way. Yeah. And, um, and I'm really happy with how they actually work together now. I, I think um, the documentary helps enrich in the experience of, of seeing the feature. But the doc too, for me, is a way, you know, I wanted it to be, I never thought I'd make a film about Orson, somebody who I loved. But this was a way for me to feel like there was a story that not only did I know it about him, but it really made me understand what what was so great about Orson, which is, you know, everybody thinks of Orson Welles at the end of his life as this kind of has been doing uh, Paul Masson commercials, you know, and, you know, appearing on talk shows, um, which he did. But nobody knew, because he never finished this movie, yeah. that he was working incredibly hard and taking every dollar he had and putting it into making his own movies that he would never sacrifice his independence on, you know? And, and um, so in that way, to learn that, you know, here in the 1970s, Orson was um, hiding in the backseat of cars with a blanket over his head, sneaking into back lots so he could sneak shots and uh, forging... Uh, shooting permits, you know, and all of these things, like the most guerrilla indie filmmaker ever. Till the very end. Till the very end. And and that was something that I just excited me, and it was a part of Orson I didn't understand, because that story hadn't really been told. And so you're making this movie, I presumably you're making this movie at the same time that you're making uh, Won't You Be My Neighbor? So, How did that yes and timeline no. line up? So we, because this, the footage came, once I started won't you be my neighbor? Yeah. We were in production, and then yeah. the call came after three years. We got the footage. Yeah. We got to go. So um, while we were editing Won't You Be My Neighbor, I started collecting the interviews for, for the Orson film. Yeah. And then immediately when we picture-locked Mr. Rogers, we went straight into editing Orson. <laughs> so we weren't editing at the same time. Yeah. And bouncing. Bouncing. And one of my editors, Aaron Wickenden, worked on both films. Wow. So we went from, you know, the land of make-believe to, uh, to Orson's land of make-believe. <laughs> and, but, you know, and they were actually both incredibly rewarding projects to work on yeah. um, and just exercised very different muscles for us. In terms of, in terms of the work you're doing, um, are you cultivating and developing a number of strands that might lead to documentaries at any given time? Or are you kind of all in on one and then everything else that everything else is sort of just kind of fades. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't have chosen to put, do these films quite on top of each yeah. other as I did, but there were these other factors of the feature and the 50th anniversary of Fred Rogers all happening that kind of right. made it all happen this year that were beyond my control. I mean, normally I'd rather have a little more breathing space and you know, I, I don't, I'm not actually in production on another feature doc now because I just finished two <laughs> this year. Yeah. But so I'm kind of taking taking a breath and figuring out what I want to do next. But you know, I, I like savoring. I mean, part of why I like this job is you want to savor the work. It's something that's yeah. why you do it is you get to read all the books and watch the movies and meet all the people and like do all that work. So I don't want to shortchange myself too much. So in terms of how I think about future future projects. I mean, I'm, I look at everything through this lens of, is this possibly a documentary in some way? Or if there are things I've thought about, I often plant seeds for projects. Mm -hmm. And there's some I can think of where, 
you know, maybe there's a, an artist or an estate or something that I would think would be really interesting. And I just kind of put it out there that if you ever want to make a documentary, give me a call. Because you know, uh, a lot of people are very protective and resistant. Yeah. And, I, and there were things I would love to do. And um, I feel like you plant those seeds. And it's happened many times where five years later, eight years later, Wait 10 years later, you get a call. Like, let's do it. So you've planted, have you planted some seeds that you're still kind of waiting and hoping and thinking? I have, I have. I'm waiting. And just waiting to see what happens. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for something to to bloom. And you must also now at this point in your, in your 25 year career of doing this, you must have people knocking on your door saying, Hey, I do. I mean, do this. And some, I've done some of those projects, but I feel like some of my favorite, most meaningful films the Orson Welles film, The Love Me When I'm Dead, Won't You Be My Neighbor, Best of Enemies, were all films that I generated. Yeah. That, that they just felt like nobody was going to bring that to me, and if they did, it would be different. You know, yeah. this, the, they were self-generated, and I feel yeah. like that the more I can do that, the better. You know, not that there aren't great ideas that come across the transom, yeah. but I, yeah. I'm trying to give myself enough space to, to keep generating. And so in, in terms of also finding or planting those new seeds that you mm-hmm. might, you, you referenced it a moment ago. So what's your process? You're just, you're reading books, you're reading articles. You're, are, yeah. you, are you just constantly open to what might strike you and just kind of out looking? Or does yeah. it happen less directly than that and kind of just... I mean, sometimes, um, I mean, there, I do look through everything through a prism of, is this a story? I mean, everything from the front page of the New York Times every day to, you know, every podcast. You know, I'm always just, it's kind of in my mind because it's how I think now. Um, And it's also thinking about what kind of story do I want to tell? I mean, realizing what a big chunk of your life you give up to make a film, it has to really, it has to mean something. It can't just be to entertain or it can't be, oh, that'd be fun. It's like, what do I want to say and also, what do I want to live with? Um, I think I've become much more aware as I've gotten older that these films are all my own form of therapy. <laughs> that, um, you know, I've often told subjects of documentaries over the years, oh, this is going to be like therapy for you, you know. And I think I was in denial for too long that, of course, it's therapy for me too. And that I've, realized I pick subjects that are things that I really want to work through or think about or learn from, you know, they're actually documentaries can be very personal, even though they're about somebody else. And, and so it's me just thinking carefully about what it, how do, what do I want to give that chunk of my life to that I think will be meaningful for the world and for me. In terms of, in terms of what you learn from a film, what you mm-hmm. personally mm-hmm. learn from a film, does that happen in the making of the movie or does it happen well after it's out in the world and then you kind of realize where it took you or what you got from it? It largely happens in the making of the movie, just spending that much time in the material or with a person or a whatever. I think you learn a lot of it. Then you also, what's interesting, if you're lucky enough, and this has only happened to me a couple of times in my career, where you have a film that connects with an audience in a big way, um, it happened with 20 Feet from Stardom, and it happened with Won't You Be My Neighbor, where from the first screening, 
it wasn't my film anymore. It was the audience's film. And everybody I met felt like I made that film for them, which is so strange and so wonderful <laughs> to have that experience. And I learned a lot on 20 Feet From Stardom, for instance, of in a way that, you know, I, you make the films and you're, you know, we were racing for Sundance at that time and like you never screened it for anybody except for a couple of friends and you don't know what's gonna happen. And that film kind of just hit a chord. And what I realized in re after the fact was, um, I'll tell you the story actually, it happened at the um, uh, Minneapolis Film Festival. <laughs> and I, it was one of the first screenings right after Sundance. And we had this great screening and a gentleman stood up in the Q&A afterwards and said, I just wanted to tell you this. I work for a software company. I'm a middle manager. I've got people I report to. I have a group of people that work for me. And I'm proud of the work I do. We work hard and we don't always get all the credit in the world, but I'm okay with that. And I realized today that I'm a backup singer and that we're all backup singers. And I thought, of course, most people aren't rock stars. We're all backup singers. I mean, that I knew was something I related to. I was like, that, that's me. But then to just see how it resonated with people f from software engineers to everybody that felt like that film was their story, you know, and that that film ultimately is about your happiness is directly proportional to the peace you make with the life you're actually living rather than the life you're told you should be living or that you dreamt of living as a child. You know, how do you come to terms with yeah, the life that. you have? Yeah, getting to that point, getting to mm. that. Hmm. Mm. In the case of Best of Enemies, mm -hmm. what was, what now when you look back at it? Well, um, Best of Enemies, um, it's still, it, was, it becomes more relevant. It does become more relevant. It's a film about these debates between Gore Vidal and William F. Buckley in 1968 that in, we posit that this began the era of, um, kind of pundit TV news screaming and you know all of, all of what we have today. Um, there were a couple of things. I mean, first of all, my first job out of college was working as Gore Vidal's fact checker. <laughs> so, so I knew Gore well. I also knew that was the worst job I ever had in my life um, because I had to call him in Italy and tell him he'd gotten small facts slightly wrong. And if he knew anything about Gore Vidal, he did not like to be told that he was wrong. And you um, had to be the one to do it. I had to do it. Uh, again, pre-internet. So I was, you know, calling him in Ravello, Italy. Um, but that happened because my partner on that film, Robert Gordon, had gotten a bootleg VHS tape of the debates. It wasn't even all, it was like eight of the 10 debates that somebody had been passing around. And I found out actually, it ended up coming from um, somebody in the Buckley family had a copy. And he said, I think this is really interesting, watch this. And I said, I was totally intrigued. I'd heard about these debates, but they were not in circulation. They were not on YouTube. They were nowhere to be found. And, um, and I watched the tape. And at the end of that tape, I knew I was gonna make a documentary about it. I didn't know exactly where it was gonna go. I didn't know the ABC part of the story. I didn't know a lot, but I just knew intrinsically that any question I had about character and tension and news and the culture of politics and media and television, you know, it was all there. There was something there. And I think really, in many ways, that film is about the same thing that Won't You Be My Neighbor is about, you know, which is, 
which is, where are the grown-ups? You know, <laughs> um, they're both about television in the same time period. How do we have a meeting place to come together with ideas? How do we um, find common ground in our culture? And what's media's responsibility in that? I mean, those are things I come back to again and again. Um, and, you know, Best of Enemies is the dark version of the story. <laughs> and Won't You Be My Neighbor is the, the more optimistic version of the story. But they're about the same issues for me. I want to give, uh, I want to give the audience a chance to ask yeah. some questions. I just felt in looking at your documentary that two things were missing. Mm -hmm. One was uh, an effort to search for the truth, the truth mm -hmm. behind Orson Welles' movie. Mm -hmm. Why did he make that movie the way he did? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't there, and it's a superficial explanation to say, oh, it's about an unfinished film, uh, a filmmaker trying to make an unfinished film. It's clearly not that at all. Yeah. It's much deeper than that. So there's a truth there that does not come out in your documentary. Well, I disagree in that truth and Orson are kaleidoscopic endeavors that we have a whole debate as to I mean, essentially, the question of the film was, was Orson the creator of bad luck or the victim of it? And I think with Orson, they're both true. With Orson, everything is true, because Orson was a different person in, depending on the time of day and the person well, in the room. Well, he was a genius. So Absolutely. So when you are a genius, yeah. you do things that other people can't. He was also an actor. So. True, too. I mean, the reality of it is Orson didn't make money for people. That's why they didn't want to give him money to make movies. I think Orson also understood that he had fallen in love with a medium, filmmaking, that was prohibitively expensive. And unlike somebody like John Huston, who thought film was not the, the pinnacle of all art, he thought painting was, that Orson believed film is the most, the pinnacle of all art. So Orson, whereas John Huston would make a lesser film for money, Orson would never make anything for money. I mean, Orson, for instance, said that, um, I mean, he did all these acting jobs that kind of painted him in a, in a public eye, but he said, as an actor, I am happy to prostitute myself for anything, but as a director, I remain virginal. And I think that was Orson's decision about how to draw the line. I think in the public perception, they didn't see the distinction because they didn't see the film because yeah. it didn't come out. But I think, you know, we, we can talk about truth and Orson forever, but this, I don't think there's an answer. This broader notion of truth yeah. is certainly something that comes up a lot mm -hmm. and, and is interwoven and inextricably connected to the notion of documentary filmmaking. Well, sure. And, and, and how do you I mean, more I, broadly look I don't at know. this I'm, idea of truth? I feel like... I'm interested in questions, not answers. Um, Won't You Be My Neighbor is a film of questions. Yeah. It ends on a question. There are six scenes in that film that end on questions. Yeah. It asks the audience to make up their own mind. Yeah. And that's what I did with the Wells film too. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I want to trust you to make up your own mind because I think the audience will have, bring their, whatever they have with it uh, whatever you know, ideas they have, they'll bring it to their own conclusion that I think will be more impactful than me telling them what to think. And in what way does what you've just said connect back to where we started, which is this, this, this situation where documentaries are so popular and at a time when 
so much of what we see on mainstream media mm -hmm. is actually trying to tell you what to think. It's not really, there's not a lot of open-ended questions. It's, it's snippets of questions that are immediately sure. you know, lobbed to people on different sides of an issue, giving you well, a lot of different answers. But yeah, I mean, to me, I personally feel like um, it's bad, I mean, it's bad filmmaking and it's bad politics to just you know, beat up your audience and say, think this, this is it. Um, so even politically, I feel if I want to make a point, I can only take the audience so far. At the end of the day, they're going to have to buy into it on their own. So I really want to empower my audience to come to their own conclusions. And if they don't necessarily agree with each other, that's great. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, for instance, I Want You Be My Neighbor, I very consciously made a film that would speak to people that I don't necessarily agree with politically. You know, I made a film about a Republican minister. Um, and not that those are inherently bad things, but uh, you know, we're at this, this incredibly divisive moment in our culture. And I said, well, how, rather than just preaching to people that agree with me, how do I reach to people who don't agree with me about things and remind them again of this common ground of what can we agree about in terms of civility and neighborliness and what kind of neighborhood are we gonna have? What kind of society are we gonna have? What kind of community are we gonna have? And to see that film screen, which I've done, screened in churches, screened for Republican legis legislatures, um, it kind of blows my mind that, and in a, in a very, in a way that makes me optimistic as much as one could be optimistic in this day, um, that if people can feel they can own that message from either side of the political divide, that, that there's something that can be built upon. Um, but a lot of that, again, is letting the audience get there on their own. Thank you for coming, and uh, thank you for taking this question. Um, just a qu um, quick question here. Like, how do you decide from, like, a massive amount of information, you know, in your, in your process? How do you, like, consolidate all the information to, like, the story or the truth that you want to communicate? Like, could you just describe your process for that? And uh, my second question is, uh, if there's a documentary on Netflix that you like, could you let us know what that is? Sure. <laughs> thank you. Sure. It's a, actually, there's one I'll put a plug in for right now because it's coming out soon. It's one of my favorite docs this year. It's called Shirkers. I don't know if anybody's seen it. Shirkers. Yeah, it was at Sundance, and it's coming out in two weeks or something like that. Uh, late October, it's on Netflix, and it's a great, crazy documentary. So that's one I'll recommend. So you know, how do I winnow all this down to a to a message. I mean, the, the other thing that I think I've become much more conscious of over the years of making films is that you really need to think of your film as in a narrative structure first. You know, and often when you're doing subjects based on archives or history or an amount of material, the instinct is to kind of boil them down. Just, you know, the classic documentary thing is you've got a thousand hours and you've been shooting forever and you end up with like an eight hour cut and it becomes a four hour cut and then a three hour cut. And I've done that, um, but I've stopped doing that. <laughs> and um, I'm much, I mean, on these two films I did this year, particularly in Won't You Be My Neighbor, it was, you know, we had a ton of footage, you, you know, and you could go in any direction with both these films and was really thinking, what do I want to say what are the points I want to make? What are the scenes I want to see? 
and kind of trying to visualize what the film is. So with the Won't You Be My Neighbor, I came up with a list of 34 scenes. And I said, let's just cut those first. And we cut them and we had 90 minutes. <laughs> and I was like, well, you know, we're not done, but at this point, any new thing has to knock out one of these scenes. And we lost some scenes and we added scenes, but it just, it, having that intentionality of really thinking about what you think the story is and really driving it and not just boiling down masses of material. Because the problem with that is you keep getting distracted by the new shiny thing. And it's not necessarily taking you back to your original intent of what you wanted to say with the film. So, you know, I would just think, really think about it in a tight narrative way. You know, really what's the story or the character development or the things you want to say in your film and, and start there. I think we have time for just one more. We're almost out of time. Is there a final question? Uh, I find like your movies have a lot of personality, as a well, as opposed to something by Alex Gibney or. Uh, <laughs> I think it. What I'm really trying to say is, how do you, as a documentarian, distill your own kind of personal take into a film that's solely about finding truth? Well, and I would, again, I wouldn't presume to say I'm the arbiter of truth. You know? <laughs> again, I think the audience is ultimately the arbiter of truth. You know, but I'll tell you what I think, and I feel like so much of my personality is in my films, even though they're very different. I mean, Alex makes great films, and they reflect a certain kind of point of view, and a lot of filmmakers do that. I feel like I'm... I really like my films to reflect my subject too. So it's a combination of, you know, with a film like Won't You Be My Neighbor, respecting the sense of pace and emotion and emotional storytelling that Fred Rogers did. And a film like They'll Love Me When I'm Dead, which is, I, you know, from the slowest film I ever made to the fastest film I ever made, which is a film about, you know, honoring Orson's sense of pace and edit and energy and contradiction and, everything else he had, and which he always embraced, and which F for Fake embraces. So, you know, I feel like I'm totally okay letting my films be different if they're really reflecting their subject. But I think there are a lot of things I do that are consistent between my films, and I think a lot of that is, I mean, really, so much of it for me is about the audience and how I reveal information on a film like Won't You Be My Neighbor, I barely talk about Fred Rogers' childhood, <laughs> you know, which is the f most obvious thing one would do. You would open up and talk about his childhood. I don't mention until three quarters of the way through the film that they called him Fat Freddy as a kid. And, and I don't explain it beyond that other than a mention. That's what a narrative film would have done. You don't need to then explain, oh, well, that must have been bad and he, that happened because of this and that. You know, I feel like you know, that exposition is the enemy, <laughs> you know, I, you know, and that a lot of biographical documentary filmmaking, a lot of filmmaking in the doc world falls into kind of Wikipedia land where people say, well, they got to mention this and then this happened and how can you not mention that? And it's just a lot of checking of boxes. And I feel like whenever I can erase boxes, I'm super happy. So feeling completely free to not you know, there are many things about all these subjects that are not in my films, 
And that's fine, because I'm not writing a book, and I'm not Wikipedia. I'm telling a very specific story. And I feel like that's something I've really come to, and I'm actually very evangelical about it, as you can hear. Like, I would recommend people to, you know, stop beating us over the head with exposition, and like, find the story, and let the story drive it. And that's something, um, you know, that I've tried to do for a long time. And even with um, all of my music films, um, and I'm very particular about how to use music in, in films too, because I've done so much of it. But a film like 20 Feet from Stardom, every song in that movie is a narrative point or a story point. You know, so not, it's not wallpaper, that everything has to serve a purpose and drive a story. So just being really hard, you know, on, on your edit and really being, you know, a butcher and just cutting it down to its essence. So that's what I would recommend. Well, um, Won't You Be My Neighbor was out in theaters this year, and I think it's already on airplanes, because I know people are catching it. Uh, so catch it on an airplane, or um, I'm sure on a service, um, yes. if, if it's not already out. It's on iTunes soon. now. It's on iTunes. Yeah, yeah. Um, They'll Love Me When I'm Dead is going to be on Netflix. November 2nd. November 2nd, you can see it there. Along with the feature. Um, Morgan, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.